You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, listen, it is no accident, no coincidence that we are in the text that we are in this morning in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 8. We began studying the book of Romans way back in August of last year, so it's no accident that the text that we're in this morning is where we are. We say this all the time, but the mission of the church, the mission of the church in general, and the mission of this campus in particular is to make disciples. That's precisely and exactly what we are trying to accomplish. Yes, to the glory of God, in the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit, all those things. But specifically, the mission of the church is to make disciples. We want to establish the correct expectation to every person to whom we minister, what they will experience as a fully devoted follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, to be a mini-me of Jesus. That's what it is to be a disciple. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to tell the churches in Rome is still true for us today, here and now. If the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus, many me's of Christ, then that's our big idea for this morning, and it's really amplified in this passage this morning, and it goes like this. The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. Now, at first blush, you hear that, and you go, well, I get it, sure, of course I do, yeah. But this is profoundly pertinent in the heart and life and mind of every believer. The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. So, if you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Romans. We will begin reading in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way through verse 30. It's one big grand section. While you're turning to Romans 8, I want to remind you the overarching theme and the thrust of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's trying to convey and communicate, that this is what God has done. So, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I want you to pay careful attention to how this passage begins and how this passage ends. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. This, I would say, is a great culmination and a presentation of what Paul's been trying to communicate through this whole letter thus far, the gospel of God. We say this all the time, the gospel is the good news. It's the great story. It's the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. So how does this passage here in the middle of Romans chapter 8, how is this an articulation and a delineation of the gospel? Well, I'm going to walk back through this very briefly, starting in verse 18. We'll explain the text a little bit, and then we'll see if we can apply this briefly to our lives. Back in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider, I logizomai, I logically, reasonably, rationally work this out. It makes sense. I love that Paul uses this word. I have people all the time that will say, well, you know, you Christians, you just, you just throw your brains in the trash can when you become believers and you just throw logic out. Not true. God is the God of order, of cosmos, not of chaos. What God says actually makes sense. It makes practical sense. Paul says, I logically work this out. It gives proper perspective that the sufferings of this present time, keep in mind, Paul's writing to the churches in Rome under Emperor Nero, who was, the Greek word is, cray-cray. He's absolutely batty, insane, and he was doing horrible, very bad things, and the persecution was about to intensify. Paul understands that. that the sufferings of this present time, Christians will go through suffering. Why? Because the Christian follows in the way of the Lord. If you look at the life of Christ, it's pretty easy to discern that the Christian follows in the way of the Lord, and the Lord suffered. Nobody would argue with that. The Lord endured many hardships. Paul talks about all the different hardships that he experienced. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This passage begins with glory. This passage ends with glory in verse 30. And there is suffering in the meantime. That is to be our expectation. That is to be what we are planning for. You are either going through a season of suffering or you just have or you are about to. Yay. Now, I know that's not super comforting, but at least it normalizes it that when you and I are going through it and those around us are going through it, this is the normative expression. We will go through suffering. It's not about prosperity theology, health and wealth. You get saved and God's going to do all these great things for you. No, 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 no. In the Old Testament, the nation Israel was promised blessing for obedience nationally. And so many people misapply that and assume that if they just do most stuff, mostly good, that God's got to bless them, that he is somehow contractually obligated to bless them. No, in the New Testament, much of the mark of a Christian is that they do go through suffering because they are living as though Jesus was living his life through them in the midst of a corrupt and fallen generation. So we just kind of have to expect that suffering is the norm. Suffering is to be expected. Now, let me be very, very clear. When I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about that irritating thing at Christmas when you didn't get the parking spot at the mall that you were hoping for. I mean, you even prayed about it. Oh, God, if you're good, if you're there, give me that parking spot right up. Oh, this is a handicapped spot again. 
That's not suffering. Oh, God, my toaster broke. Oh, I'm facing the giants in my life. That's not Goliath. Your broken toaster's not Goliath. No, no, that's just a thing that happened. I'm talking about persecution and a fallen world that is opposed to the righteousness of the Son of God. That kind of stuff. And we think we know suffering. And sure, our worldview is increasingly coming under ridicule and fire in our day and age. But we don't know persecution like the rest of our brothers and sisters all around the world that are experiencing more bodily persecution than any other time in history combined. Paul says, that's real. That's happening. And it's going to continue to happen. But, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's real, and it's painful. Paul doesn't say it's just going to go away. It doesn't matter. No, he says, in comparison to that bright, bright light of glory that will be revealed to us, it's not comparison. The difference is time. Suffering is temporary. We always, always can remember that. Suffering is always temporal. Glory is eternal. And it's not worth comparing. This is very good news. This is encouraging to us. Verse 19 Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation longs for God to reveal finally and fully those who are his. The other mini-me's, the little Christs, if you will. All of creation, by the way, all of creation does not merely mean the material world. The created order includes the spirit realm as well. Creation is anything that is essentially not God. God created, that includes the angelic realm, the spirit realm, the material order. All of it is longing to see how these people who are fallen, who are corrupt, who are opposed to God by nature, how they will be revealed. It's really an interesting verse. They want to see who are the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. It's really interesting. The creation, by no fault of its own, is cursed in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are not cursed. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed because of what Adam and Eve do. They, the creation feels the repercussions of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not the ones that are cursed. And so creation is now longing to see those whose, whose sin and error subjected them to futility. They want to see those people now revealed as the sons of God. Interesting verse here in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God is the one who subjected the creation to futility, to entropy, to, to essentially to, to break down into chaos. But in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Apostle Paul never met a prepositional phrase he did not love. He strings them together like popcorn on a tree. He loves prepositional phrases. The creation is longing to experience the same level of redemption that the sons of God have received. Paul's going to give us a series of three different groanings. These three different mumblings, this synthesomai, this, this the creation groans, waiting for God to do it, to finalize it, to finish it. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Here's the second of the groanings. The creation is groaning for the return of Christ to finalize, to finish it. And we ourselves groan. Some of us groan more loud than others. Some of us, it's a spiritual groan of just come Lord Jesus. Even so, some of us just waking up in the morning produces an amazing amount of groanings. I get it. Dry bones rattling. 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning, verse 22, uh, and together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee of the Spirit. The Spirit eternally indwells every believer. Cannot, will not ever depart the believer. Eternally indwells. And the Spirit of God himself has moved into indwell this fallen and frail and fragile vessel. And so the Spirit of God himself indwelling the believer is going, this place is jacked up. And he's right groaning, God, we have to do this. And the father says, I know. And the son says, I know. The spirit himself groans within us because it is God himself indwelling the fallen vessel, groaning. And so we, in agreement with the spirit, say, this is not all there is. This can't be. If this is all there is, then I am toast. If this is my only hope, if this is as good as it gets, I'm way heading into sunset. It's bad news for me. The spirit groans inwardly. We groan inwardly. As we await for adoption as sons, this is some of Paul's wonderful already and not yet language. He's already said in the previous passage of Romans 8, we have received adoption as sons. He has declared us firstborn males of the household of God. And we, we eagerly await the adoption as sons. It's both and already and not yet. What is the final stage of our adoption as sons of God? Well, it's the redemption of our bodies. Now that's very good news. Just this last couple weeks, I've talked to so many of you who have had extended hospital stays and experienced the loss of a loved one and all these things, and our bodies are breaking down. And if you don't believe me, I'll let you come up here and stand, and you can see what I see. Our bodies are breaking down. God love us all. It's happening. We know this. We feel this. We sense this. But our full adoption will be at the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. We have this hope. We look around and we go, if this is all there is, it's not enough. I'm in desperate need of something else. I can't, I can't fix this. That was a part of our salvation, the hope of what God would finally fully do in the future. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, Paul explains, hope that is seen is, now, is not hope. If I look at my body now and go, this is as good as, it, that's not hoping for anything. No, I have to hope for something else, which is why we have the gospel accounts where the gospel writers give us so much information about the resurrected body of Jesus. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John says, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus is not merely the Son of God incarnate come to save the world. That's true, he is, but he's also our model. He's a human being permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the first one ever, and we, like him, are indwelled by the Spirit. The Gospels give us a preparation for how our lives will one day be as well. That's very good news. For who hopes for what he sees? I was talking to Fritz Hager, who is our uh, executive pastor, who's a, a war veteran, fought in Desert Storm, and he always used to say that in the military, they will say, hope is a terrible strategy. And you can see that in a military context, that is exactly right. I sure hope this works out. That's, that's not how you want to be in the military service, right? Boy, let's see if this works out. Not so good. No, no, no. That's how most of us think of hope is it's synonymous with wish. That's not the biblical definition of hope. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. A confident expectation of something good in the future. Not, I hope I win the lottery, dot, 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 but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to. That's not biblical hope. 
Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. That is the strategy of the Christian. That is how we are to live our lives. And since we do have that confidence and that expectation for the future, that provides the patience and the perspective that we need to live our lives in the here and now. Well, verse 26, Paul moves on. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever been there? I've been there a lot. It's like, God, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I got nothing else. I'm out. I, whatever I say now is going to be stupid. Whatever I say can and will probably be used against me. I don't know what to say. I'm out of words here. I'm saying gibberish now. And the Spirit of God, who is the mind of God, intercedes on our behalf. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I love this. It's very much like as the rest of the scriptures will call the Holy Spirit our guide, our counselor, our advocate. It's like there I sit at the formal judiciary bench and the Holy Spirit is my He's my advocate, he's my counselor, he's my guide, he's my attorney. And I'm praying, God, I need this, I want this, would you please do this? And the Holy Spirit covers the microphone and goes, actually, Your Honor, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't know. Here's what he really needs. I know him better, you know him better. This is what he really needs. And you know this, and I know this. Let's bless him in ways that he'll never fully discern this side of glory. That's the way the Holy Spirit of God works in and through us, whether or not you and I feel it. Feelings cannot be the the metric of our spiritual maturity. Let's be very careful with that. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. He who searches hearts is God the Father, and he knows the mind of the Spirit, who, by the way, indwells us eternally because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. (laughs) There's no way ever you and I will fully appreciate what Paul is saying here. When you and I pray, it gets, in a sense, translated, interpreted into the language that is of the triune Godhead. And so when you and I pray, we must know that it is being transmitted through the Holy Spirit. It is as though when you pray, Jesus Christ himself is whispering it directly into the ear of God the Father. Because he is. Do, do, you, do you see, this is the gospel. That the same level of communication and contact and connectivity that Jesus had with the Father while on earth, you and I have. I know we don't take advantage of that enough. I know I don't because we don't really understand prayer. But prayer, by definition, is an expression, is a concession, is a confession of weakness. I can't do what must be done. I see the wreckage around me in my community, in my home, in my own personal life. God, would you do something? Give me the clarity, the wisdom, the strength, the courage to do something, anything. And the Spirit interprets, translates that into the language of the triune Godhead. And it is as though God himself is hearing that request from Jesus because in a sense, that's Jesus' program. To live his life through you all over the planet, millions and millions of mini-me's all over the place. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's plan, that millions of people indwelled by His Spirit, just like Jesus, be His presence all over the world. And then a very familiar, comforting text, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is an important passage for us to get some clarity on. This is all about sovereignty. This is all about God's good and perfect purpose. It's been wonderfully encouraging to millions of people throughout the entire history of the church. This has always been true of the messianic community. This is a part of the gospel, the way Paul lays this out. Despite how everything might be going, despite how everything might seem to be going, we know how this is all going to turn out. For the Christian, in a very real sense, we have next Monday's paper on Friday. We already know how this is all going to play out. We know how this is going to go. We have next Monday's paper on a Friday. Now, Paul does not say, interestingly, that God removes all bad things or that the bad things that happen are actually good. Paul would not say that. He knows better than to say that. Many of you have been the recipients of some kind of assault or abuse or abandonment or anger or something else, and Paul would never call that good. It's not. It's bad. But God can and will redeem it and use it for good. Some of you have been the recipients of bad health, of horrible financial situations, of crumbling relationships, all these different kinds of things. Paul doesn't call those things good. It's suffering. But God can and will redeem it and use it for his good. What this broken and fallen and corrupt world intends for evil, God superintends for good. That's Genesis 50. When Jacob says that of his, or Joseph says that of his brothers who sold him into bondage, what you intended for evil, God superintends for good. Now that's sovereignty. When you can accomplish your purpose perfectly on time, not in spite of, but through the bad choices, thoughts, words, and deeds of billions of people. That's sovereignty. Oh, and good news. He's good. It's terrible news to have a sovereign if he's not good, but this one is good, and he loves us more than we love our own selves. And he's always working all things together, despite how it seems to us, for our good and for his glory. For whom is he doing this? For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? My favorite paraphrase of Romans 8:28 is by Dallas Willard. And you've, if you've heard me preach before, you've probably heard me say this before. Romans 8:28 paraphrase by Dallas Willard goes like this: "No irredeemable harm will ever befall the child of God. No irredeemable harm will ever befall the child of God. You will go through suffering. You will go through pain. You will go through seasons of question. Maybe even as St. John of the Cross called the long dark night of the soul. But you and I will never experience any irredeemable harm whatsoever because we are called according to his purpose. So what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul now gives us, The great glory of salvation. Salvation is an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. That's our working definition of salvation through the book of Romans. It's an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. So Paul tells us what it means to be called. This is what's been called for centuries the golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 29, and 30, super central passages in Paul's doctrine of salvation. He's going to give us six key words here. Let me read these again. For those whom he foreknew. Now, we started the Roman series off back in August, and I invited you to carefully monitor your doctrinal defense gates. For some of you, you lock these things down and you're not going to give them a budge. No matter what happens, you're right and everyone else is trying to catch up to you. 
Okay, I'm going to invite you to loosen your doctrinal defense gates ever so slightly and see, are you building your doctrine on tradition, background, history, experience, and emotion, or are you building your doctrinal stance on the truth of God's word? You might have a particular position on this, that, or the other. I just want to tell you, in Romans 8, this is Paul's perspective. If you choose to disagree with Paul, God love you. Great. I'm just going to tell you what Paul thinks about it. That's all we're going to say. Paul says, and it's unambiguous, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. This is prognosis. Those whom he knew in advance. I've heard all kinds of exegetical gymnastics with this word. People say, well, what it really means is, it has to mean that God looked through the corridors of time, he saw what people would choose, and then he chose them. That's clever. It's absolutely not what the text says. He foreknew. Before the foundations of the earth, God knew them. Intimate familiarity. It's the same word in the Hebrew, yada, to have intimate experiential familiarity. Why can we say that? Because our salvation theology is rooted in our God theology. God exists in the eternal now. He's not experiencing the passage of time or the succession of moments. God sees all eternity in one vantage point, in one viewpoint. Those whom he foreknew, he has known from the be, before the foundations of the earth, before creation, before God said, let there be light, he had already said, let there be life. Now that's comforting. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now again, I heard all sorts of attempts to explain this away. Well, what he means is they gave him a little bit of a nudge. That's a great, that's a great idea, except that's not what the text says. Now I want you to pay particular attention attention to in these two verses the word those this is why they call it the golden chain those whom he foreknew those are going to make it all the way through to the period of verse 30 those get all the way through it's not those begin in verse 29 and by the time we get to 30 we got about a half dozen left no 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 no. the those of really the end of verse 28 those who are called go all the way through those whom he foreknew he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's plan, is that you and I, if we are his, are conformed, are, are compressed, molded, shaped, refined, and sculpted into the image of Jesus himself. And by the way, sometimes that hurts. To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see? The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. He is our model. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he's also our model for how our lives are to be and to go in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, incidentally. And those whom he predestined, he also called. This is not an invitation. This is a summons. When the sovereign of the cosmos says, come, you don't say, mm, I don't know, there's a playoff game this afternoon. When the sovereign of the cosmos calls, you come. It is Jesus in John chapter 11 saying, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus goes, I kind of like it in here. It's dark and cozy. No, no, no. Lazarus comes out when Jesus says, come out. Those whom he called, he also justified. Notice the chain. Those he foreknew, he does all these things. He justified what? He finds them guilty. He declares them righteous. 
Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the mind of God, it is already finished. Please notice the verb tenses of all these verbs. It has already happened. Already, and not yet. I can look out across this room. I can certainly look in my own bathroom mirror and realize I am not fully glorified. And yet, in the mind of God, my position with him will never improve. It is as great and as good and as glorious as it will ever be. That's the relationship I have in Christ because I am in union with Christ. Now, that is very, very good news. Now, we could spend 12 more weeks in this passage alone, but I want you to remember that our takeaway, our big idea for this passage goes very simply like this. The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. That is to be our expectation as we live every day of our lives. So three very quick applications, principles that are intended to influence and impact our thinking and our feeling. Number one goes like this. And I, I concede, this is probably the worst church billboard ever, and you've heard me say it before, but it's true. It goes like this. God's will for your life is that you be saved, that you be sanctified, and that you suffer. Yay! That is God's will for your life, that you be saved, that you be sanctified, and that you suffer. Not pointlessly, not for no purpose, of course, to suffer so that he can continue to sculpt and to refine. And sometimes he uses a chisel and he knocks big chunks off and it hurts. I concede that. Sometimes he uses heat to heat and melt things away and it hurts. And I concede that. But that is God's plan for your life, that you and I would be not just justified and glorified, but sanctified, conformed to the image of his son. And sometimes that hurts. That is his plan. And I've been told, yes, there's actually four S's that we'd be saved, sanctified, suffer, and serve together. Yes, by the way, we would love for you to sign up in our children's ministry to serve together. Maybe you can knock out three of the S's, sanctified and serve, and perhaps even a little bit of suffering when it's diaper time. I don't know. That is God's plan for your life. God loves us so much. Just hear this for a moment, please. God loves us so much that he will allow the brokenness of this world to influence and impact us for his purpose. If you're a parent, you do hard things to your children because you love them so much. I can remember taking my two little guys to get them shots, and I thought if anyone else were to jab my kid in the thigh, I'd punch him in the throat but I'm going to hold the kid down for this one because it's good for him. He needs this. And God loves me so much more than I love my own too. He will lead me through seasons of suffering so that I am changed ever increasingly into the likeness of his son. And I will tell you, this has even impacted the way I view others who are going through seasons of struggle. In complete candor and confession, I used to look at people who were suffering and go, my God, whoo, that stinks. I'm so glad I'm not them. Whoo! Thank you, God, I'm not them going through that. But I think enough time in God's word and in prayer and with God's people, I have come to see that when people are going through suffering, I really do look at them differently. And I go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how much God must love you. My heart breaks for them. I enter into empathy with him. I think, my God, my God, he has not forsaken you. He's loving you. He's more close to you now than he was in your time of prosperity. And that's a whole different way we are to interact with one another in the context of the church. And so we want to be careful not to try and rescue people too quickly out of a season of suffering. 
because perhaps God is doing a thing in them. We want to come alongside them, love them well, enter into their midst and sit with them and be with them and, and comfort them, yes, but not to try to rescue them out of something that perhaps God is doing. Second point goes like this. <laughs> You're not going to like this one. Me neither. The mark of maturity is delayed gratification. If I want something, I want it yesterday. But the mark of maturity is delayed gratification. All of us are the kinds of creatures that prefer pleasure to pain. Of course we are. And when pain occurs, we want it to end as quickly as possible. You know what? God's made us that way reflexively. If I touch a hot stove with my hand, ooh, that hurts. I'm going to stop that. That's sometimes good for us, but... We also know what it is to voluntarily enter into some kind of hardship because of how much we love something else. It's called marriage. It's called parenting. It's called being a friend. All those kinds of things. We're willing, we're willing to enter into hardship now because someone else is worth it to us. We understand that the pain or the discomfort or the inconvenience is temporary, but the thing it will produce is lasting and of greater value. That's proper perspective. That's biblical wisdom. Looking at time the way that God does. This is fleeting. This is for a moment. This will not last. Evil, pain, brokenness, sorrow, even death are a flicker, a twinkling of a light on the eternal timeline. We have that proper perspective. A Christian is someone who thinks and feels with a broader perspective and can see beyond their current experience to know that something larger is at stake. Yes, we will always experience difficulty and struggle now, but we do so mindfully as an act of worship because we know and we trust and we hope that God is in control. And so when things come into our lives, we don't go, why, why is this happening to me? You need not ever ask that question again. It's not a good thing per se, but God can use that good thing for our ultimate good and for his glory, and we trust that he will because he is good. And so our reaction to seasons of suffering is actually an act of worship in and of itself. Thirdly, and I just want this to be an encouragement and a comfort to every single one of us, it goes like this, salvation belongs to our God. If you get nothing else from Romans 8, 29 to 30, salvation belongs to our God. That's not me trying to defend one particular theological tradition over against another. It's simply an encouragement. Look what God has done. Because I'll tell you, I encounter people all the time that say, gosh, I really don't know. I'm struggling. Did I ever really believe anything at all? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Were you called? If so, then what the Bible says is that you have been predestined, you have been foreknown, you have been called, justified, sanctified, and glorified in the mind of God already. It's not up to you and your strength and how you feel about it. And by the way, this is not merely some principle that I synthesized at the end of a sermon. This is profoundly biblical. This is Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. This is Revelation 7, verse 10. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. Salvation belongs to our God, meaning His it is, and His He does it. God's done this. You don't have to worry if you were really sincere, because you probably weren't, but God has done a thing. According to Paul's gospel and that of God, this is what God does in salvation. Yes, salvation is an event and a process in which a person is brought in a right relationship with God. It belongs to God. Yes, of course, there is human responsibility. We are wrecked. We see the wreckage of our own lives, and we respond. We repent, yes, but even that is a leading and a prompting of the Holy Spirit. We live in the light of this future 
history. I know that seems like a contradiction in terms. God could care less. This is future history. It has happened already and not yet. And when you begin to wonder and to feel if all of this is really real, and if you're really a Christian at all, look at this passage, be reminded of all that God has done in Christ to redeem you to himself, even if you don't happen to feel it. We've said this several times already in our series on Romans. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Tell yourself the things that are true from God's word, not merely your meandering feelings. They will deceive you. The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. This life is not easy. And everything that happens is not necessarily good, but God. When we get into situations that are hard and we want to ask the question why, we can be reminded that the Christian follows in the way of the Lord. And you and I get to be those weird kinds of people who walk around in our world and go, hmm, this is hard, but I wonder what would be happening to Jesus if he was living his life through me? Because he is, and that is precisely what we are to expect How would Jesus be persecuted in this context? How would Jesus be uh, the recipient of this circumstance, this situation? Because that is precisely what is happening. The Christian follows in the way of the Lord. See, Jesus is alive, and he lives forevermore. The good news, Christian, is that what's true of him is true of you. Now, if you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, You're here because you just kind of want your life to go better. I have horrible news. It's just going to get worse. But I invite you to believe anyway that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is alive, that He is the first fruits from among the dead, the firstborn among many brethren and sistren. And that all the things that happen to you, none of it will ever be irredeemable. I invite you to believe, and I invite you to have the courage to talk with someone that you will love and trust about some of this. For the rest of you who have been believers for a very long time, I want to remind you of the glory of the gospel, of what God has done in Christ. Look at all these things he has done because he loves you and me more than we will ever imagine. And then we would be those people who walk around with this thinking and this feeling that the Christian follows in the way of the Lord. May we. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your spirit indwelling those of us who believe. Thank you for your people. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone this morning who does not know you that's in this room this morning, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit, that you would do for them what you have done for us. I pray that you have foreknown them, that you have called them, that you have predestined them, that you have conformed them, that you have justified them, that you have glorified them. May it be, Father. May they have that realization, that recognition, and may they speak with someone about it. For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us by who you are and what you have done. May we live as though it were true. We pray all these things, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.